All praise and thanks are due sorry to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, traces peace, blessings and salutations upon our master and exemplar, Nabi Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Ahlan wa sahlan wa marhaban bikum. I welcome you to the Isnad Academy. We are broadcasting live on YouTube, on the Isnad Academy channel, as well as Facebook on several channels, including the Voice of the Cape. We are also broadcasting on VOC 91.3 FM. And alhamdulillah, the panel discussion tonight is about vaccines. Of course, this topic is probably one of the most important topics in all of our lives around the world right now because for the past year we've all been facing the COVID-19 pandemic and of course based on the fact that it is such an important topic there are so many different opinions out there and different statements going around that we felt you know we need to bring about authentic knowledge and this is what the Isnad Academy is actually all about it's bringing about authentic knowledge from authentic sources going to the reliable sources and actually getting our information from them this panel is not intended to be a debate it's not intended to be a back and forth of the different conspiracy theories and it's not intended to be uh, there for any attacking this is purely for information we as the community we want information and we would love to get that information from people we trust people we depend on, people whose lives have been dedicated to the service of Allah's deen as well as to saving lives of humanity. So Alhamdulillah, we are very privileged in that we have an esteemed lineup, Alhamdulillah. We've got uh, Dr. Sadiq Karim, who's the Chief of Operations in the Western Cape uh, of the Western Cape Health Department. Uh, Dr. Zamir Bray, who's a health system specialist who also serves as an advisor on a number of boards and structures related to the health system, currently employed with the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, speaking in his personal capacity here this evening. Dr. Salim Parker, uh, who served on the South African Expert Committees on two words that I, I thought I'm going to be able to say by now, but uh, it's, it's very big. So I'm just going to let him elaborate on these expertise, alhamdulillah. Uh, on basically meningitis vaccines and others as well. And a board of member is a, is a board member of the Middle East, Eurasia, Africa, Influenza Network, also an expert reviewer for international medical journals such as Vaccine and Journal of Travel Medicine. And most importantly, he's a GP in Alsace River and his practice has diagnosed, treated and supported hundreds of COVID-19 cases. And then of course, we are joined by the Mufti of the Muslim Judicial Council, Mufti Muhammad Taha Karan, who is also the founder and uh, principal of the Darul Ulum al Arabiya al Islamiya in the Strand, Western Cape, and has recently authored a book of 40 Ahadith on contagion and pandemics. This is our panel, Alhamdulillah. We do want to make it clear from the, the very outset that the discussion is so big and it's so, uh, so important to all of us that our questions alone, subhanAllah, has reached 23 very important questions, which we are going to give priority to because they were well thought through questions as far as giving the most information and benefit to this program is concerned. We, we do welcome questions from the viewers and the listeners. That said, we cannot promise that we will be able to get through all of the questions. So what we do encourage is forward your questions regardless, and we will certainly endeavor to compile them and either have a follow-up program and respond to them in that way, or have a written response for those questions, inshallah ta'ala. We have noted some questions 
uh, from the public, some suggestions of other panelists and so on, bearing in mind that this, is, this was never intended to, uh, to be a debate. So we thought, you know what, we're not going to go down that route. And the questions that we have received, we've noted them and we will endeavor to respond to them, inshallah. To commence with this uh, evening's discussion, I'm going to ask uh, the Mufti of the Muslim Judicial Council, uh, Mufti Muhammad Taha Karan, to open up this discussion and lay the foundation for tonight's panel discussion, inshallah ta'ala. Mawlana Taha, assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Faliya tafadl mashkura. Wa alaikum assalamu alaikum wa barakatuh. Can you hear me clearly? Yes, Mawlana, we can hear you loud and clear. Jazakallah khairan for joining us. Mawlana, I hand it over to you to commence with the opening uh, discussion of this panel. Bismillah. Yeah. Um, there are a lot of time in front of us and the amount of questions that we need to cover without whether we'll actually get to the end of it. However, I'd like to begin with a question that seems to be unrelated to the topic. And that question is, where exactly in world history are we located at present? Where in world history are we presently located? I want to go back at a time when Islam was emerging out of the Arabian Peninsula and standing poised to take over uh, the Middle East, uh, 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 what existed of the Middle East at the time, the Persian Empire, large parts of the, uh, large parts of the Roman Empire as well. And then it stood heir to the collective intellectual tradition of previous civilizations. Specifically in this regard, I'd like to mention the medical traditions of the Indians, of the Persians, of the Romans, of the Greeks, of the Egyptians. It inherited all of that and it adopted a certain attitude towards that legacy. What, what was that attitude? It was one of openness. It was one of engagement. It was one whereby we will take it. We will judge it by the standards of what Allah has sent us to his Rasul and then we will develop and enrich that legacy and then we will give it back to the world. Um, at that time, the rest of the world was leading us. A uh, few centuries would pass and we would then be become able, on account of the manner of our engagement, of our openness to scientific fact and the manner in which we were able to locate scientific fact within the framework of our deen, we were then able to develop medical science to heights unknown and thereafter uh, during that period Europe went into a period of stagnation a period of, uh, of superstition, a period of myth versus science and fact on the other hand eventually when the dark ages were over when enlightenment came, came to Europe it was on the basis of knowledge which they had received from the seminaries of uh, Portuba and Baghdad uh, that they eventually arose again I believe in the spirit of our Nabi Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam uh, who used to be optimistic through every step of his life. I believe that we might be finding ourselves at a similar juncture in history, where on the one hand, we have superstition, we have supposition, uh, we have zero facts, uh, 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 on the other hand, counterbalanced by science, by factual knowledge, by uh, things that we cannot simply deny and walk away from. And we need to engage with those facts in a manner that will bring about the desired change in the wheel of history whereby this ummah which had for a thousand years served and given to mankind will now once again rise to the position of leadership of mankind. I believe we are at a juncture which could well spell the, the beginning of that. That juncture of course being uh, this uh, COVID crisis. Uh, we have had several engagements with um, uh, diseases of the sort before and every time that we engage them, alhamdulillah with uh, the help of uh, what Allah has granted us in terms of um, medical science. Uh, diseases such as smallpox was eradicated. A disease such as polio was eradicated, or almost eradicated. Um, there's something to be said for the manner in which I had to add the word almost over there 
in the course of our discussion, we'll get back to it. But much of it has to do with vaccination and the manner in which we treated the phenomenon of vaccination. If we treat it properly in a manner that conforms to our aqidah, our sharia, our worldview, then we will be able to bring advancement to this ummah and to the rest of mankind. Uh, if we fail to treat it properly, we might just have adverse uh, circumstances result from that. That is where we are located in this day right now. That would be my opening remarks. Um, I didn't hear what you said. Uh, I think you were muted. Can you hear me now? Can you hear me? Wa alaikum salam wa rahmatullah. Yes, um, uh, I'm going to add all up all of our panelists <laughs> before we continue, inshallah. So in no particular order, Dr. Salim, uh, Dr. Salim Parker, who I've already introduced. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah. Wa alaikum salam wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. And shukran for the invitation. It's a pleasure, Doc. Always a pleasure to have you with us. Dr. Sadiq Karim, assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Dr. Sadiq, your, your mic is on mute. And I'm also going to ask Dr. Zamir Bray to join us. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Wa alaikum salam wa rahmatullahi wa malana. Shukran for the opportunity to be part of this discussion. Jazakumullah khairan. It is, uh, it is a pleasure and privilege to have everyone with us. And of course, we've already heard from uh, Mufti Taha Karan. So now we can commence with the questions, inshallah ta'ala. I've already given an introduction to all of the speakers. And uh, Bismillah. So first and foremost, vaccination. Before we get into the COVID-19 vaccination specifically, uh, Dr. Zamir, I'd like to ask you on a global scale, what has been, what have we seen so far as far as the proven harms and the proven benefits of vaccination? Shukran Maulana for that question. You know, I, I think Mufti has uh, made this uh, easy for us because, in fact, he's already pointed to the fact that vaccination has assisted uh, through the grace of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to write certain diseases to the, into history. There are a number of diseases, as Mufti had mentioned, smallpox, um, we hope we are on the brink of being able to uh, write polio into the history books. We hope that soon we will be able to write COVID, things like tuberculosis as well. Um, so globally, uh, Molana, the benefit that vaccination has brought in reducing uh, mortality among children is by consensus among scientists globally, the single most impactful health intervention that we can ever do. And the way they look at health interventions is for every rand or dollar we spend, how much are we saving in terms of years of life, in terms of livelihoods, etc. Right, right. So consistently, vaccines have been shown to have an outsized impact 
on the ability to reduce severe disease, morbidity, suffering, mm -hmm. and death. And Maulana, I'm, I'm reminded, I just, you know, read an article of a gentleman who was infected with polio when he was a few years old. He spent the better part of 30 or 40 years in what people may forget was called the iron lung. And the only thing he could really move was his neck. So while, while we, you know, may forget, alhamdulillah, that these diseases have uh, caused, you know, suffering amongst the people, we must also remember that there's been a cure. And alhamdulillah, it has made a massive impact right. globally. Khair, alhamdulillah. So that's uh, just some background with regards to vaccinations. And of course, um, as Dr. Zamir had said, uh, the scientific community are uh, sitting with evidence that it is in fact the biggest lifesaver, one of the biggest lifesavers that we have in our recent history, alhamdulillah. Um, obviously, this panel is not only about the medical aspects of uh, the vaccine. We, one of the big questions that we have as a Muslim community is the permissibility of vaccination in general and, of course, vaccination uh, in terms of COVID-19. So uh, back to Mufti Taha Karan, with regards to vaccines, Malana, um, could you give us some insight as to the general permissibility of it? Malana's mic is muted. I'm unmuting it first. Bismillah. Um, am I muted? Yes, Mona. Yes, Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Um, look, vaccines have been with us for a while now. Um, I'm not going to speak about the efficacy of the of, of the vaccines and the method, the, the manner in which it works, and so on. Just the manner in which the ulama looked at it, whether it is permissible or not. Um, uh, a vaccine, the permissibility of it will depend upon the uh, content, ingredients, what is in there and thereafter uh, harmful effects or possible harmful effects there might be. What we know, what we are told about um, uh, the tests, the rigorous tests to which uh, these vaccines are subjected in order to test for what? Specifically harm. Um, I think there's, there are very few medicines in the world that are put to the type and the level of, uh, of tests that the vaccine have to go through. In the case of uh, our in the case of uh, this particular vaccine here, uh, there's one fact to be mentioned, that is that it has, alhamdulillah, gone much faster. I remember our very first engagement, Dr. Zaveh, you might remember, in Saudi said when he spoke about it, you gave us the glad tidings back then already that this is going to go much faster. Afterwards, we came to discover that vaccine normally takes something like 10 years. Yeah, you had it in one year, you did say second quarter uh, 2021, it would be there, and here it is. So uh, the questions that arise is, what does it contain? Now, there are some questions here, there are some issues. Does it contain porcine gelatin? Does it contain, um, uh, uh, what is the other kind, ethanol? Does it contain traces of, of fetuses? Let's go uh, one by one, each one of these. As far as porcine gelatin is concerned, only some of these vaccines are said to contain porcine gelatin. I think the, the, the Chinese one, Sinovac and Sino Farm or something like that. Those are the ones that are said to contain it. But even when it contains it, it contains it in a format where a great deal, a great number, a great sector of the ulama of the madahib will say that it has undergone such change whereby it no longer constitutes the original 
uh, element and it has undergone the type of change that Mendes did over the world. Let's uh, uh, acknowledge at this moment that this point is a, is a point of dispute between the scholars. However, wherever a difference of opinion exists, it creates leeway, especially in a situation of extreme and dire necessity such as the one in which we are in right now. The presence of SMO in uh, medicine should, uh, you know, in this particular context, probably be the least of our concerns. We have ethanol in so many other uh, things that we consume on a daily basis, not even medication. And when it comes to medication, hundreds of years ago, already our ulama have made it clear that when ethanol or hummer in, 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 in a diluted form is used in medication for the purposes of being a solvent and becomes obliterated to the extent that you can no longer uh, observe its properties, it becomes permissible uh, with uh, one or two added conditions, that of efficacy, and that of it, uh, uh, you know, having been advised by a Muslim uh, physician as such. One area of concern might be the fact that uh, the carrier uh, in some of these vaccines uh, historically has been cells taken from a fetus that was aborted back in the 1970s and so on. And in this regard, we must not make the mistake of becoming Catholic. You know, as far as abortion is concerned, we tend to sometimes take a very, very strident position on it, almost similar to that of the Catholics, which is not, which does not reflect the diversity of opinion within our traditional fit as far as that is concerned. Uh, prior to ensoulment of the of the fetus, there's quite a number of the, of the scholars spread over the various madahib that regard the type of abortion as actually permissible, not even when, it, when you have to have overriding circumstances for it. So once again, differences of opinion exist and within the, 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 the latitude provided by those differences of opinion, anything that is said to be objectionable about these vaccines can be contained within there and especially when we have a situation as dire as this one. All of those factors, while they, should, they, they, they have to be considered, however, they do not become uh, uncrossable impediments to permissibility in that regard. What remains thereafter uh, is the question of harm and on the question of does it, or does, uh, does it, uh, you know, can it, or could, uh, would it not be harmful? Uh, the, uh, the medical experts are better suited to speak about that. There is another aspect, and that's the one of conspiracy theories. And I hope that we will actually get around to speak about some of that as well. So just in short, uh, to summarize for for the layman, um, so medicines would be. Uh, whether they they find themselves with problematic ingredients in them or not, because they are medicinal and they and they have proven efficacy, therefore they will be permissible in general. Yes, I would, I, I would just like to add that I cannot at this moment, you know, adequately go to all the uh, source texts to be able to quote them all of them because then we'll take the entire uh, time of the panel discussion. So hopefully we will be publishing something in this regard from the side of the MJC, uh, a publication as well as in tandem with the Islamic Medical Association. I have to mention, I have to mention the fact that whatever steps have been taken in this regard here, my very respected and esteemed colleagues that serve on this panel together with me, Dr. Salim, Dr. Sadiq, and Dr. Zamir, these are not the only, with all you know, love and respect to them, they are only a small sliver of the doctors that have been uh, you know, co cooperating in this regard. We can speak of the support of the entire Islamic Medical Association and uh, the entire cohort of Muslim doctors, all, just about all of them that is there. So it should not be reduced to just a number. And in terms of fatwa, our view will be our view, but that view conforms to the view of just about uh, you know every major fatwa-giving organization in the world. Time allowing, those will be listed in their fatwa will be made public as well. Taib, Jazakumullah khairan. Dr. Sadiq Karim, uh, while you unmute your microphone, this question is for you. Um, obviously, with 
COVID-19, many things with regards to the hospital has been uh, disrupted. Uh, part of that may have been vaccination. Can you tell us a bit about the disruption of vaccination in the Western Cape, uh, especially now over the past year? Bismillah. Sure, so, sorry, I was muted a bit earlier, but let me talk about the disruption that COVID caused and then we can talk a little bit more specifically about vaccination. So COVID, unfortunately, because we had to dedicate our resources to fighting the COVID pandemic, had a significant reduction in the normal services that we would be providing. So to give you some example, Molina and panelists, um, during June this year, when all 20, uh, 2020 already, June, June 2020, when we compared June 2020 with June 2019, we found a 43% um, reduction in the HIV testing in the metropole, and in fact, a 33% reduction in TB testing. Those are significant numbers. And people will remember we also had to reduce elective surgery. We found a 51% reduction in elective surgery when we compared June 2020, when we were at the height of our lockdown with June 2019. So COVID itself had caused a significant disruption in the normal services that we that we obviously offer, as well as a disruption in immunization. And you know, obviously with the preventive health campaigns that we that we promote in the department, those are significant impacts for us. And those effects, unfortunately, we're going to see later on. In, the, in a year or two's time. Yeah. With regard to vaccination and the disruption in the sense that it would cause, and we can talk a little bit later about that, but the Western Cape, I want to assure the public that the Western Cape government has significant plans in place for the rollout of the vaccination campaign. Inshallah, we hope to start on Monday, the 15th of February, but obviously we will be using our healthcare workers to to do the vaccination. So at the moment we are working with the private sector and ourselves at looking at how we can best minimize disruption to the normal services whilst we take our health workers um, in order to perform the vaccination from the 15th of February onwards. So inshallah, we will try to keep that disruption from the vaccination specifically to a minimum as far as possible. I mean, otherwise we're going to be seeing, uh, you know, catastrophic we'll just effects, see a, like a domino absolutely. effect type of thing. Absolutely. We'll see a resurgence of diseases that we shouldn't really be seeing, you know, at, mm. in the Western Cape, that we think that we've overcome already before, inshallah. But we'll, yes. inshallah, we will we'll do all of that. Just if I may add on to that just very briefly. So uh, the type of antibodies that we would have been building up for these other illnesses, uh, was there a bit of a compromise based on our practices for the last year in terms of our immune systems and constantly sanitizing and so forth? No, we don't. We've, you know, we've looked at these kind of if, in, impacts, the impact of sanitizing, mm -hmm. etc. And, you know, there's been no impact on our immune system, so, so to speak. Right. But I think what's probably more important is the psychological impact of isolation and mm -hmm. the other mental health aspects. I must bring that Absolutely. in um, because that has, in fact, been catastrophic. Um, particularly right. the elderly and particularly the isolation that we faced. Um, and so we're starting to see quite a number and a resurgence of uh, people with mental health illnesses who are now coming into our services again, inshallah. But I mean, we will obviously have to manage those pressures as time as time moves on. Right, subhanAllah. Um, you know, one of the one of the alarming things about the COVID nineteen vaccine, and I think we can all relate to this, is that we were told when the when the uh, pandemic really spread, when it became a pandemic, that it takes so long for uh, a vaccine to go through all the trials and to be tested thoroughly and so on. And then obviously, you know, our own minds, our own logic also tells us that you would only be able to do so many tests and you would only be able to see efficacy over a certain period of time. So Dr. Salim, 
why the urgency for the COVID-19 vaccine? You know, is this just a race to get the money from the vaccine? Is this a ploy? What has not been tested due to this urgency? Bismillah. Uh, Dr. Salim, your mic is muted. If you can just restart that uh, answering yeah. public. Yeah. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. And shukran for the question. Uh, the, uh, I think the answer to that question for the urgency of a vaccine is the pandemic itself. 105 million cases, 2.3 million deaths in, in about a year's time. And to compare to TB, which everyone knows about, 10 million cases a year with about uh, 1.5 million deaths. So here we're looking at a new disease Everyone's not really aware of its uh, implications and it's unpredictable. We know that um, all the modelers said that after the first wave in South Africa, we're predicting a smaller second wave, maybe in March, maybe in April. Clearly, okay. we, uh, we were all wrong about our predictions of this. Uh, the virus is really uh, outmaneuvering uh, normal science. So what are the options that people have? The one is treating it we don't have treatments. I mean, we can talk about uh, certain uh, speculative ones and certain proposed ones later, but there is no real treatment. Yes, 95% of people will recover, but 5 million of 100, I mean, 5% of 105 million is more than 5 million deaths in a year. Um, if, mm. you know, if, if we look at the projected uh, death rate, so clearly we need to intervene. Because, and just put it in perspective, it's, it's estimated that about 150 people, 150,000 people die every single day on this dunya. Um, these are figures from the World Health Organization. At the peak, 17,000 people were dying every day due to COVID-19. Confirmed cases. Yeah. These are other than the what we call the excess mortality and so forth. So if 17,000 people pass away on a daily basis due to uh, COVID-19 out of 150,000, it meant mm -hmm. that 10% of deaths every day at the peak of COVID was due to COVID. You know, so clearly the, something needed to be done. Medication and uh, treatment was not effective. Preventative measures uh, such as social distancing and so forth would help. It flattens the curve, but it doesn't eradicate the organism. So we needed something other than that. And we've already alluded to the uh, issues of uh, the efficacy of vaccines. It's one of the most effective public health measures ever in the history of mankind. And that's why there was this race for, um, for vaccination. Mm -hmm. Yes, the first world countries were affected. So that's why, unlike with malaria, which kills half a million, mostly Africans every year, or TB, which kills mostly the lower socioeconomic groups, the first world countries were affected. So there was the urgency for, I mean, mm -hmm. money was being poured in. In the United States, we had yeah. this operation, warp speed and all those uh, mm -hmm. issues. So there was clearly a reason for these uh, type of measures uh, to be taking place. And what happened was that there were vaccine platforms. Unfortunately, the older ways of, before, of producing vaccines, for example, the ones against flu, against yellow fever, all the other ones that we use, they use older methods, which is mostly grown in eggs, for example. That is slow. It's but cumbersome, and you can only produce a certain amount at this, over a certain period. We needed to produce more. We needed to produce it faster, 
and we needed to be produce it cheaper. So that's why these newer pl platforms were introduced and we, we can talk about the different type of vaccines a bit later. And Alhamdulillah, there has been progress. It's not perfect. We don't know the long-term effects. Let's not uh, uh, say that this is a miracle, uh, but it's got proven, vaccination has proven benefits like it's already been mentioned. It so the is one thing that definitely the, hasn't been proven is the long-term uh, impact no, and what, what will happen. Absolutely. Okay. And also there's, there's other side uh, seems to be, for example, there's, there's scattered uh, reports and we have to acknowledge that. In Norway, yes. there were recent reports of, of deaths amongst uh, the elderly who were vaccinated. The Norwegian right. authorities say that this is in line with the number of deaths that they normally find amongst the, uh, amongst the uh, inhabitants of old age homes. So again, it's a, and there was, for example, uh, a, a nurse in, in uh, Portugal passed away a couple of days after the, uh, receiving the vaccine. The autopsy uh, results are not out yet. It could be due to the vaccine, but there's a high possibility that because of her age, because that she was slightly overweight, that she could have uh, succumbed to some other disease. So unless we actually have those reports out. We can say there's deaths associated, uh, but if it, until it is proven to be a, uh, to be a direct result of the vaccine, right. we can only say it's speculative. It's not confirmed right. yet, but we have to bear it in mind. Right. Bismillah. Okay, I'm going to ask Dr. Zamir to also comment on that for a moment. Before I do, one thing that, that Dr. Sally mentioned was, you know, uh, about uh, the number of deaths and there were, there were often sentiments about inflation of deaths and we've, we have addressed this in a previous panel, so I'm not going to focus on that right now. But the point being here, you know, whether, whether there, were, there was actual inflation of numbers or not, uh, the loss of a single life is too much. You know, so uh, I, I think people kind of lose the plot when they start focusing on these things. I'm not saying that it's justified or that it's correct, but still we shouldn't undervalue uh, human life. You know, subhanAllah. Yeah. And, and yeah, if I may just add, yeah. if yes, I may just add the, um, the number is actually underestimated. Currently in South Africa, if we look at excess deaths, we're looking at at least 80,000 people who've passed away due to COVID-19 and not the 45,000. Um, some authorities feel it might even be higher. The ones that we document are those that are confirmed with COVID-19, not those that are uh, that might have passed away from it. Yeah. Hey, Dr. Zamir? No, I think it's, uh, I think that that's a good point. And I, I guess, uh, Maulana, that, um, Maybe a couple of things to just highlight. Your, your question was, how did we get a vaccine so quickly? Mm. The usual development time is 10 to 12 years. Okay. In fact, just down the road from me over here is a vaccine production facility. The only one in South Africa. It took them almost 15 years to develop the technology to be able to produce a single vaccine. Mm. That's one one vaccine because to set up these uh, highly advanced technology platforms as dr salim alluded to takes time so how did they do it so quickly four quick things the first is the partnerships that we created during the pandemic before the pandemic actually held through the pandemic one of them was uh cepi uh with the center for epidemic preparedness and that was a conglomeration of, of partners that came together and said, we need to prepare for whatever is going to come. Um, the second thing they did was they created platforms that could do two things. The one is 
they introduced newer technologies, but they also ramped up the rate at which they could produce vaccines. And so what had happened is for some of these vaccines, even while the testing was happening, they were gearing up production with the hope that that vaccine candidate would be efficacious. If it was not, we'd have lost a lot of money and there are going to be vaccines where lots of money is lost. The third point about this is we've never had this amount of investment in vaccines. So part of the reason we could go so quickly was private sector, philanthropy, public governments invested so heavily and took the risk that some vaccines would, would work and some would not. But because the epidemic was essentially wiping out $2 trillion a month, the world needed to do something. And so on top of the 100,000 cases and the 2.5 million deaths, $2 trillion a month meant that, Molana, every one of us on this call year know somebody that's been impacted economically by what's happened during COVID. Unfortunately, the socioeconomic impacts are going to be with us for a long time. And the only way we can start to uh, bend that curve is to try and uh, stop you know, the ongoing impact. Mm. Of course, in addition to really wanting to save, uh, save lives. Dave, Jazakumullah Khairan. Malana Taha, there's been a, a number of questions and comments in relation to the ingredients of the vaccine. Um, one of the, the concerns specifically, Malana, I think your mic is muted as well. One of the, the concerns specifically happens to be the ethanol and the aborted fetus cell lines in the AstraZeneca vaccine. Could Mona kindly comment on that in Fadlikum? As far as the ethanol is concerned, whatever is present in the, uh, in, uh, in the vaccine is going to be present in such minuscule quantities that you probably have more ethanol in your normal fruit juice than one you have there. And then when you consider it with a number of other things, when you have ice cream, when you have sweets, you're probably going to have ethanol having been used as a solvent for bringing everything together there. You're going to have more ethanol in those things than this vaccine that's intended to save a life. So right. ethanol will be the very least of your concerns. And even if it is there, remember, I've already mentioned that the Fuqaha, the jurors of Islam, have stated that when wine is present in a medication, uh, in an obliter uh, in, a, in a manner which is completely obliter obliterated, you cannot trace the smell, uh, taste, and color, etc. Then there is no problem with it. So let us not put our own preferences ahead of that of the Sharia. If the Sharia doesn't have a problem with it, then why should we? I did see another comment though, and that is someone made the uh, deduction that oh, it seems that nothing is a problem. You know, can just contain about everything. Nothing is a problem. And uh, look, that is an unfair deduction. Tell me what it contains, and I'll give you the view that the Sharia has on it. However, you need to know, and probably this is where we need to go and uh, visit some of the texts of the Sharia, to know exactly what position does the Sharia take on objectionable substances. A group of people came to Medina Munawwara. They became ill. They got the fever. Nabi Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam sent them out and told them, go to the camels out there, go to the camel herd, ask him to give you of the urine of the camels to drink. Why? Urine of camels. 
who do they go and drink the urine of a cow or a camel? The resources mm. they don't drink it, showing that in abnormal circumstances and for the sake of preservation of health and life, those barriers open up. Those barriers weren't open up by me and you. Those barriers were opened up by Nabi Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam himself. There's only one substance amongst everything that happens to be there. There's only one substance that Nabi Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam said will never ever be uh, used as, as medication. That, that is pure, unadulterated wine. Alhamdulillah. That cannot be. That is not a cure. That is a disease in itself. Just about everything else. Whatever you can think of as objectionable, mention it and we will mention what the Sharia's view is upon it. Do not think that the, the situation that we face is one of a headache or a, you know, a pain in the leg. This is mm -hmm. life. We have lost 40, even 80,000 lives of people that we know, our own personal friends and relatives. Is this still the time to ask, you know, is nothing objectionable? No. We should follow what the Sharia has already in place. And that is what the Sharia has. Jazakumullah khairan. Dr. Zamir, this one is for you and the other doctors may comment as well. Uh, but I just want to add a premise to this question. There was, there were sentiments going around that, you know, uh, to control the population of the earth. That's why this vaccine is, is going about. And others, other earlier sentiments were about, uh, you know, we're going to be testing it on the poor countries and on Africa and so on. But we're actually finding a strange phenomenon now in that we, we actually don't know as the poor countries in the world when the vaccine will come our way. But there are countries who have had, you know, huge rollouts with regards to this. Could we get an indication as to the um, the global supplies of COVID vaccine and how poor countries are affected? And on the other side of the coin, how the more affluent countries in the West have been uh, supplied with these vaccines? Shukran uh, to the, the viewer for that question. And, I, you know, it, it's something that's really close to me personally. Uh, Molana, I actually want to use the words of the head of the UNAIDS, Ms. Winnie Binyama, and she described the most tragic situation we are finding ourselves in is probably the vaccine apartheid nobody ever wanted to see. Um, and the head of the WHO called this, we are on the brink of the most catastrophic moral failure that humanity has ever seen. And part of the reason here is that correctly, as, as the views pointed out, or, or Molina pointed out, the, the wealthier countries have not only bought enough for the population, they have bought four or five fold of what their need was because they weren't sure, you know, which candidate's going to work. So they bought multiple uh, of what the, the actual need was. As of today, 119 million doses have been administered at a rate of almost 4.5 million doses a day. That in itself is, uh, alhamdulillah, it's a wonderful feat. But unfortunately, the downside to that is 95% of that is in the wealthy northern countries. Mm. America with 37 million, China with 31 million, UK with 11 million, and Israel, uh, as we know, you know, has, has vaccinated the highest rate of its population, Israel has vaccinated, and the United Arab Emirates is not far behind. As and a result, add, they're not sharing any of those vaccines with the poor Palestinians. And yes, absolutely. But you know, Molin, I did one analysis and I thought, let me just see, compared to the burden, we are they 
compared to other countries. So let me say Israel has the fastest rate of vaccinating its population mm. and is actually the fourth highest in terms of coverage, is only number 27 in terms of the burden of COVID. Mm. In other words, that's how low down they are on the list. To give you a comparison, we are number 15, the highest on the African continent, possibly the equivalent of 20 other African countries, although we know that you know the other countries may not be accurately kind of be able to quantify the disease. The UAE is number 42 in terms of its COVID burden, but number six in the world in terms of vaccinations, numbers of vaccinations yeah. completed. Now, if there was an ever a time for, for the world to unite and make sure that the vulnerable populations are catered to first, could we make an agreement that healthcare workers around the world get vaccinated, then the elderly, you know? But unfortunately, many of the mechanisms that have been put in place, some countries have disregarded them. Uh, so, for example, the COVAX facility was set up as a mechanism to pool the global resources and make sure countries like our own and the rest of the African continent actually get vaccines and that we're not at the back of the line while the rest of the North is covered. And the most important point about this, nobody's safe until we're all safe. That mantra has sadly proven true because as the North continues rapidly to vaccinate its population, there will be more variants that emerge and those vaccines may not be as effective, unfortunately. And so if we don't take a global approach to, to the problem, many people will left behind and it will cost, the estimated cost to the global economy is $9.2 trillion. Yeah, Rob. So once again, those in power and those with money, they get preference and uh, the poor are actually being neglected. Dr. Sadiq, you had a comment on this, Bismillah? Yes, Shukran, Shukran, just for add, adding to that, you know, I recently had the opportunity to listen to Professor Slim Karim, um, the, the clever one, the other Karim, the clever one. <laughs> he, he coined the term vaccine um, nationalism. And I really thought that that was such a, a, a good description of exactly what Dr. Zamir is now talking about, you know, in, in a sense, what's what's happening, unfortunately, around the world, the issue of vaccine and vaccine administration has be, almost become a new form of some sort of imperialism. Um, and that is very, very unfortunate. What we want to do in this country, and particularly in the province, we are looking at lessons learned from countries that have managed to vaccinate big proportions of their populations. And we are hoping we got the three-phase vaccination program in South Africa, and we're hoping to bring some of those lessons from those countries that Dr. Bray now mentioned. We're hoping to learn from those lessons, particularly in the Western Cape, and particularly as we move to the, the, the public vaccination beyond phase one, beyond the health worker vaccination campaign. So inshallah, and I mean, I do agree that one of the key risk groups in that are obviously healthcare workers and the vulnerable population, particularly the elderly and those with comorbidities. And so they will, will have high priority on our, in our criteria in terms of vaccination in, in the province and in fact in the country. Shukran. Uh, just a, a quick question. There seems to be a lot. 
a lot of comments on this issue. Uh, number one, is it true that there are in fact aborted fetuses or parts of aborted fetuses in the vaccine? And therefore does, you know, based on that, then you know, how do we, how do we take this? How do we understand this? Bismillah. Obviously this I, is a combination question between the doctors and Malina. Let me, let me take a first table and my colleagues can tell me if I'm wrong, but the vaccine that we're getting in South Africa, um, is the Covishield vaccine. It's made by the Serum Institute of India under license from AstraZeneca. So that's the vaccine. Well, that's the first one that we're getting. That vaccine is a, 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 a weakened adenovirus, um, vac adenovirus vector vaccine. That's what it's called. So weakened adenovirus vector. And what they do is they've taken the, the spike protein of the COVID, of the coronavirus, of SARS-CoV-2, they've taken that spike protein, and they've and they've inserted that into the weakened adenovirus vaccine as the vector, and that is what we are getting. So I don't know, my colleagues can tell me, but I don't know about any aborted fetuses being used for that vaccine. The other two vaccines, the Moderna and the Pfizer vaccines, are in fact what they call messenger RNA vaccines, um, and that's a slightly different mechanism, but there again, I don't think there's anything about aborted fetuses, and I know I can see Dr. Salim is wanting, itching to, to say something. You know, the, uh, yes, assalamu alaikum again. This, this issue has been coming since 1970 odd when the very first vaccine uh, was actually cultured in this aborted fetus. Um, now, firstly, the aborted fetus cell line that was used in the, two, I think it was 1972, that cell line is propagated artificially in the labs. The adenovirus that Dr. Karim mentioned now is used, needs to grow in something. Remember, viruses cannot grow unlike bacteria on surfaces and so forth. They need to actually grow into cell, in cells. So the same cell line that was used in 1972 is artificially grown in a laboratory and the virus is then propagated in there. That virus is then extracted from there, so it's completely removed from this fetal cell line. Then the vector is inserted into there, as Dr. Karim described. So there's no trace of the fetal uh, cell line in the vaccine itself. So this this particular vaccine, uh, the AstraZeneca, um, it's the only one that uses that particular cell. And lots of other vaccines that we have, um, hepatitis A, for example, this issue has been debated amongst all the uh, medical associations, amongst all the ulama worldwide. The uh, will probably be able to um, to testify to this has been overwhelmingly that firstly because the uh, virus that's used is extracted out of these cell lines firstly and there's absolutely no trace of it in the vaccine itself secondly that at the current moment there's no alternative um, to the vaccines that we have so the it, it is permissible to that uh, for, to their, from that uh, point of view as well, and and thirdly, it is life saving. So, what is more important, a issue that has been completely um, uh, clarified by the uh, ulama, by the the esteemed scholars of fiqh, and we're talking about fifty years of debating this. In fact, it's not even debated yet. It is. It's been cleared up by authoritative bodies such as the Islamic Medical Association, by a number of other authoritative bodies throughout the world. There's not a single uh, uh, ulama body that I know of that has issues with this particular question. It seems to be coming up 
year after year as when the question is raised. But the uh, vaccine, the, the um, AstraZeneca one, the final product doesn't contain it at all. Um, again, just to put things in the picture, the AstraZeneca vaccine is the first one coming into South Africa. It is going to be exclusively used by the health personnel. The second batch is not going to be the AstraZeneca, it's going to be the Pfizer one. So when it comes to the public at large, they're going to be getting vaccines, most likely not uh, associated with the AstraZeneca one. So that question for the for the uh, uh, South African population at large will not be applicable. Those who might have questions are the first line receivers, who are the doctors, the nurses, the healthcare workers, and uh, and other um, what we call what we call the uh, healthcare workers. So, and there'll been probably a, a good indication as to how acceptable the vaccine is going to be to them. Looking at how acceptable it is, and Dr. Karim will probably add to this. Doctors, firstly, there's been about thirty-five thousand South African healthcare workers who got infected. Nearly five hundred of them died already. We, the healthcare workers, are exposed to this virus on a daily basis. Who are the first people who started applying for the vaccine? On the first day, 35,000 healthcare workers put their names down to be vaccinated. These are people who are exposed to the virus on a daily basis. They would not be putting their names down to be vaccinated if they felt that there's a problem with the vaccine. Molana, you want to add on to the uh, uh, fetal cell? Yes, I think this this one issue uh, tends to draw a lot of attention. On our side, your uh, mic is still off, so uh, we didn't hear if you had anything to say. But this is an important issue because it creates a certain type of sensitivity with regard to the viewer. In the earlier meeting that we had today with one of our colleagues, a question actually posed, the, and the question is that, is there an ongoing killing of, of fetuses in order to make, uh, uh, to make uh, vaccines? No. There was one fetus or two fetuses. The one that we specifically speaking about here was aborted. And I must add, and I did mention this before, and you know, with the length of time, I think we are on 49 minutes already, and uh, we're not going to get through everything here. I think this program has to be four or five different programs. In any event, uh, I've, I've said this and I have to repeat it again. Um, a, a, a fetus that is aborted pre ensoulment prior to the Nafkur Ruh, prior to the Ruh being blown into it. And the blowing of the Ruh is a metaphysical event. Uh, you know, you cannot test for it by uh, normal medical uh, uh, tests. That's Nabi Sallallahu informs us exactly when the Ruh gets blown into it. So when you have a fetus being aborted prior to ensoulment, that is not the same as a normal fully grown human being. But let us take the case of a fully grown human being. There is a person who has a, a brother or a sister or something who needs some bone marrow. And then we transplant from the one into the other. We don't have any problem with that. We have a kidney being transplanted from one person to another. We don't have a problem with that. Then we don't bring up this kind of issues because then we clearly understand and we clearly perceive how the one sibling is helping the other sibling. How the one sibling is helping the other sibling have a certain quality of life. What we have here is a pre-ensoulment fetus that was aborted. And uh, from its cells, there were other cells duplicated from the cells, uh, stem cells of that. Uh, literally, I don't, I don't want to give a figure. The doctors can give a figure, but something that is called cell lines. It's not that original fetus anymore. It has long ceased to be that original fetus. From that, uh, I don't know if I, it will be correct to use the word clone, but from there, there were reproductions and reproduction, reproduction of, of cells, and those cells act as carriers for, for, for it is not the entire uh, vaccine, the vaccine, it is a carrier, and in the final product, you don't have it there anymore. 
So the group, the religious grouping that's probably the most sensitive about abortions happens to be the Catholic Church. Even the Catholic Church has sanctified these particular vaccines. Even they have. So the question is, and this might be a bit of a cliche, that are we going to actually now be more Catholic than the Pope? Uh, our Sharia has much more latitude in that regard and, and much more sensitivity for the preservation of life than what happens on the other side of the line. So here, uh, the sensitivity that exists around the, 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 the cell lines, I think is a bit of a misplaced sensitivity. Our Sharia is wide enough to encompass that. Tayyip, Jazakumah and what I find, even just browsing through the comments, and there are a lot of comments, uh, I just want to reiterate the reason we're having this platform, and I think we might have to have a follow-up because we clearly are not going to be able to get through even our own questions. Um, Malina, this is a phenomenon that I've seen over the last uh, year, more than ever before in my life, how people are not interested in uh, information, but rather in that the information that they already have or that they found, they just want that verified. Um, so it's interesting that many people are not coming to a, an informative platform where we have experts on the topics to get the information, but rather to you know make sure that they can say something in opposition to that information based on their own personal Google searches and the like. Um, but one thing that that seems to be a prominent we can't we can't not touch on this topic is ivermectin. This has been big. I would love to know more about ivermectin. I'm no expert. I could also Google search, but I, I know the, the the faults of that. So could the doctors kindly tell us about this ivermectin magical drug that is now available freely, not freely, but being sold in the black market, being this, uh, being uh, spread among community members, being given to the elderly, to the youth, to everyone for that matter, as this miracle drug. One of the comments read has been approved for 45 years, used by 2 billion people with 0% death rate and a Nobel Prize. Why do we need a vaccine? Uh, your comments, doctors, Bismillah. I'm not, I'm not sure who to direct this one to. So uh, perhaps if you can volunteer, that would be most uh, you, appreciated. You, 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 Molina, you can see us all rushing to answer this one. <laughs> okay, okay, off no, you go. Salim, okay. Salim okay. can okay. I make a few comments, but I'm gonna, sure. gonna hand it back to one you. One at a time, please, one at a time. <laughs> you know, Molina, actually, can, can I just uh, say that the one thing this virus has taught us actually is we do need to humble ourselves. And the reason I'm emphasizing that is there are things we're learning about this virus at lightning speed that we didn't know last week. So this discussion that we're having here, there are some things that we are reporting. It may change next week. Please don't say that we lied. We are trying our utmost to give you the facts as we know it, but the the, the, the greatest minds on this particular virus have all started with that disclaimer that this is what we understand today. We may be wrong down the line. Salim, over to you. Um, shukran. I always start off with saying whatever I say today might be completely wrong tomorrow or right tomorrow or a week after or a month after. Now, this is an Islamic platform, so let's use use the Islamic method of proof as how we normally use it. There's absolute proof, which is Quran. Then we have Sunnah. And again, when you look at Sunnah, we look at, is it Sai, is it authentic, or how is it weak or not? So let's extrapolate that to what we do in medicine. Medicine, we use what we call um, evidence-based medicine. One of them is looking for 
authoritative publications such as, and we all find that on a platform, most of us find it on what's called PubMed. Now, if you're looking at PubMed, you look for the, for example, you want authentic uh, Sunnah, so you look for mm -hmm. the best of uh, the discussions, uh, best of uh, studies, and those are what we call double-blind. Uh, I'm not going to go through all of that, uh, but it's it's double-blind, uh, placebo-controlled. So, in other words, the the person in charge of the experiment doesn't know he's giving ivermectin or a placebo, and the person who receives it doesn't know that they're getting it, uh, what, what they're getting. And only after the trial is done, then we, we what we call unblind and see what the results are. Mm -hmm. if those type of studies are not available, akin to there's not a Sai um, uh, uh, hadith, then we look at a weaker form, and that is what we call observational studies. And this is where, what happened when these people use these uh, Again, let's look looking at ivermectin. They use it over a long period. What were the benefits? What were the harms? Was there any benefit? Was there any harm? And if we look at studies, and again, this is not uh, a, uh, a group of doctors or or academics or anyone uh, mm. saying that uh, ivermectin doesn't have a place. We just don't know because if you look at those studies, there isn't at this moment enough evidence to say that firstly, it is, uh, it's got this benefit of reducing, um, for example, the mortality by 75%, um, because there was an analysis done, which everyone quotes by Dr. Hill. It's an excellent mm -hmm. overview of it. And he uses good stu studies and some studies that are not that well substantiated. For example, in one of his studies, he says that 78, there was a decrease of uh, deaths by a rate of 75%. I want that type of studies. I mean, I want to use a drug that can use that. Mm -hmm. But if you look at the other studies, also contained in that what we call a meta-analysis. His own conclusion, this is the person who did the meta-analysis, his conclusion was that the evidence for ivermectin at the moment does not, needs to be further investigated, but currently we cannot promote it, and neither can we say it doesn't have the, uh, the, uh, uh, the benefits that some are claiming. So as a doctor, and uh, and all, all of us are attached to certain universities or certain organizations. There's not a single um, uh, university, for example, the University of Cape Town, the University of Stellenbosch, all the academics there, having looked at the evidence, are at this moment saying we cannot use this as treatment, neither can we use it um, as prophylaxis because the evidence isn't there yet. It might come. I understand. I've, I've, at one stage, we were losing one or two patients in our practice a day. Uh, but And I understand we want to give something. I would not stop someone who wants to use it, but I cannot prescribe it as a, as a scientist, as a doctor, as a, uh, uh, as, as, as a member of a body who abides by certain rules and certain regulations. And these regulations are there to protect us. If someone comes mm -hmm. tomorrow and says, we've got this particular tablet that worked for my grandmother and my sister, uh, I, I must start using it. We need to have evidence first, and that at this moment is not sufficient enough for us to promote ivermectin either as treatment or as a, as a prophylaxis. Not saying that it might appear in the future. It might come in mm. the next few months. We don't know, but not at this moment. So there's no big conspiracy to keep it away from the people because you'd rather want the people to go and take the vaccines? 
Um, I th firstly, uh, I think Molina did some research on Merck, which is a producer yes. of the vaccine. So Molina, um, you, I'm sure you can enlighten us on Merck, which, which produces this particular uh, ivermectin drug. Bismillah. Yeah, I, I want to first start off by saying that I quite like the man in which Dr. Salim turned into Muhammad a little while ago, you know, telling yeah. us about the hadith and else. So I'm going to turn into a little bit of a doctor for a little while. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, Dr. Salim spoke about, you know, ivermectin might or might not have curative, uh, you know, uh, uh, properties where someone takes it and he gets cured. Um, or someone doesn't have the disease yet and it might prevent him or might not prevent him from getting it. But uh, let's not put it on the same uh, uh, level as a vaccine. What a vaccine does is not just prophylaxis and is not just curing, it is inducing immunity. And that is what we require for the community out there to, to bring about the trigger of the immune response. That uh, uh, ivermectin phone cannot do that. That level is going to be different. But you know, the easiest thing that the, the vaccines are being produced by big pharma, and everyone has heard the word big pharma, uh, somehow or the other, ivermectin is not being subjected to the same level of scrutiny and rigor that everything else or every other uh, vaccine happens to be subjected to. When with the vaccines, we ask the highest level of questions. There are some of us that would insist upon 100% efficacy, which you know doesn't happen for any any medicine or any drug anywhere. So they say, no, we won't use this unless we have 100%. With ivermectin, we don't even come close to 100%. Anecdotally, perhaps, yes. But uh, in, in terms of scientific rigor, no. Now comes the question, big pharma. So who produces the vaccines? Okay, so it is uh, AstraZeneca and it is Pfizer, Moderna and so on. How come the same questions is not asked who produces ivermectin? This is where the company Merck comes in that Dr. Salim mentioned. Merck, M-E-R-C-K. This is the seventh largest pharmaceutical manufacturer in the world. In other words, very much part of Big Pharma. So ivermectin is also being produced by Big Pharma. So if you have a problem with Big Pharma, then you should be having a problem with ivermectin as well. In addition to that, I will give you, and I did pose the question to you, Mullah Shaman spoke earlier, but you know, I said, I'll give you one guess as to who is one of the big investors into ivermectin. Not three guesses, one guess. And yes, you've guessed correctly, it is Bill Gates. So if you have a problem with Bill Gates, you need to have a problem with ivermectin as well. But the fact that you don't have a problem with, uh, with ivermectin shows that you never had to have a problem with Bill Gates in the first place. Hmm. And, and, and Bill Gates. No, so uh, yes, there's a lot of anecdotal things going around in the community on our comments and so on that people, you know, I've taken ivermectin, my mother's taken ivermectin and so on, and they found that it worked. Alhamdulillah. Um, but, you know, this does not by any means mean that it's now proven as the doctors have indicated. There are tests that these things have to go through. Um, were tests, I mean, if we compare the tests that Ivermectin went through compared to the tests of the vaccines, um, can is there any sort of comparison? Any of the doctors may answer this? Bismillah. Dr. Salim? Sadiq, Sadiq, you are the authoritative body, so... I was about, I was waiting for you to, okay, that was a, you can comment on the clinical issues, but I'll comment on from the, from the official position perspective. Um, so, so the SAPRA, South African Health Products Regulatory Authority, um, they control the licensing, if I can put it that way, of all health and health products in the country, and, and, and much like the FDA and all the other places in, around the world. So the studies that Dr. Salim referred to what SAPRA's position is at the moment and the Western Cape position follows that. And so what they're saying is that, that it's not currently recommended for use outside of a clinical trial 
until the results become available and the results of the studies that Dr. Salim referred to. So it, it, it's not recommended for use in the treatment of COVID. Remember, ivermectin has been around for a long time as antiparasitic, but not in the treatment of COVID. And Sapra does not recommend it at the moment. We've had, in fact, just as recently as last week, we had a colloquium in the Western Cape with some of the brightest minds in the country, um, some of the brightest doctors in the country were treating patients daily also from an academic perspective. Um, and they concur. They concur that until those results are in fact released, and that shows that in the studies that Dr. Salim referred to, the, uh, they, they do not recommend um, its widespread use in the treatment of COVID outside, in the, outside of the context of a clinical trial. SAPRA has recently given a, an amendment to that direction, directive in the sense of what they call a section 21. In other words, you can, doctors can apply on compassionate grounds if they wish to use ivermectin, but then there are certain conditions and certain criteria um, and, and the doctors have to be comfortable with why they're using ivermectin in the treatment of COVID. So that is in a nutshell is what the Western Cape position and in fact, that's the position around, around the country as well. Okay, Jazakallah khair. And we, unfortunately, we have to wrap up the program uh, because we are out of time. I can state, however, that there were so many uh, very good, legitimate questions that I wish we could have come through. Our own questions were not covered. I need to make this uh, very clear. Our own questions were not covered in totality. There's one more that I, that I definitely want to include as part of this program. But there were legitimate questions from the viewers and listeners as well that I do feel perhaps need to be addressed. And I will consult with the uh, the panelists, inshallah, if we can have a follow-up program or how we would address them, but we will not just leave it at that point. The one question that I definitely want to include here is, will anyone be forced to take the vaccine? I mean, if so many people are fearing and debating and arguing against and for and so forth, will anybody yeah. be in a position where they are going to be compelled to take the vaccine? Malana, I can answer that emphatically, no. So nobody will be compelled um, to take the vaccine. It will be on a voluntary basis. I do want to emphasize that, and it's, it's an issue that Molana Tarr touched on, is it's not about the individual protection. The thing about the vaccine is to think about the protection to your loved ones around you and the community around you. Um, and so, yes, you will absolutely have an option to take it or not. Um, my understanding, and Dr. Karim can confirm this, the government will not be imposing, this will not be a, a mandatory vaccination. We've not had mandatory vaccination in, in South Africa. Um, so there will be choice. But Alhamdulillah, Maulana, I think it's platforms like this that our intention is to at least share the little knowledge that we have uh, with the community, try and address some of those questions. Um, and, you know, inshallah, those those people that have good questions about, you know, the things we've just discussed here, we, let's find a way to respond to those in future, inshallah. But I mean, saying that, that we will not be forced on the one hand, but on the other hand, we have seen some reports about vaccine cards, you know, for international flights and things like that. I mean, wouldn't that be some sort of a compelling, you know, because now you're, you're not really left with a choice? 
Uh, Dr. Sadiq, I mean, being uh, part of the Western, yes. Western Cape Health Department, can you comment on that, please? No, absolutely, Molina. I mean, it is an important question, but as Dr. Samir was saying, our the government position, and we, in fact, had a long discussion. We've got an expert advisory committee in the province um, that specifically advises us on ethical and moral issues related particularly to the vaccination program is led by Professor Mohammed, and is a team of really, really worldwide experts. And they actually considered this. They looked at the moral issues, they looked at the ethical issues, and exactly confirming what Dr. Zamir was saying, we will not as a government, and that's a position we're taking in the province as well, be forcing anyone to take this vaccine. What we are trying to do is exactly as Dr. Bray was saying, through four like these, we are trying to make sure that the community has have, has enough knowledge from people like ourselves as panelists to be able to make an informed choice. Having said that, it, people must realize that what we are trying to achieve is something called herd immunity. In other words, there's enough people in the population in South Africa who are vaccinated in order to break the transmission of this virus and to break the chain of events that that, that were. And, and really the important thing here is why we're pushing also very hard. We have to potentially blunt a potential third wave because there have been countries that have experienced third waves. And that's why we're really pushing very hard to blunt a possible third wave and so in summary, we will not be forcing people to take the vaccine. It is a voluntary choice, as Dr. Samir was saying, but we are trying to, through the communications and materials that we're putting out, allow people to make an informed choice. And the last issue is around herd immunity. Inshallah. Inshallah. No, the last herd immunity. was meant yeah. to be informative, you know, and people, we, we, mm. we never promised that we're going to have pro-vaccine mm. and anti-vaccine or anything of that nature. And I didn't know what the panelists were going to come up and say, you know, this is our position. So this was a certain our plan. Dr. Salim, before I ask Manana Taha to, to give our final uh, remarks and his final remarks, I would like to ask you about uh, the studies that you told me about in Brazil. Uh, you mentioned that ivermectin was yeah. used in Brazil. Uh, could you just comment yes, on that? Yes, um, I... uh, they tried to do studies in Brazil um, and they, certain of the universities couldn't do studies because 8 out of 10 of the people who presented with COVID actually were an ivermectin. So you need mm. not to be an ivermectin in the first place for you to be uh, to be enrolled in the study. So that's a f the first point there. And again, really, I don't want this to be perceived as being anti-ivermectin. No, I'm the, this is more for pro-evidence. Um, again, if you look at a country like Brazil, with widespread um, uh, use of ivermectin, there is very, uh, I mean, this, the death rate, the, the number of deaths is the third highest in the world. The number of cases is the third highest in the world. Yeah. Contrast that with a country in Central Africa, Senegal, for example, where, where there's a lot of, uh, not uh, Senegal, Mav, uh, a country such as uh, Kenya, where there's a lot of usage of uh, ivermectin as well, where the numbers are low uh, and the deaths are low as well. So there's, there's conflicting evidence at the moment and we need to sift through that. Just one last kind of remark is that when it comes to travel, for example, we go for Umrah or Hajj, no one questions about the uh, the enforcement, for lack of a better word, of mm. taking them in into cockle vaccine or the yellow yeah. fever vaccine. That is compulsory. So certain countries are going to insist if you want to go work there, you want to travel today, or if you want to go, for example, pilgrimage or even holiday, um, that you must be vaccinated. And this concept of a travel passport, a vaccine passport, is most likely going to be very, very prominent in the next year or two. Mm. Okay.
So basically, the, the, some people will be compelled in that sense if they want to travel that they would have to undertake the vaccine. So yep. from that perspective, okay, Jayed Amonana, uh, I think we, we we have a lot of unanswered questions and a lot of things that we we would really like to cover, inshallah. But I would I, I would ask you at this point to to please uh, give us your your overall remarks about some of the things that you 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 didn't get a chance to remark on and your final comment, inshallah. Bismillah. Yeah, I uh, just thought of what I think that we need a follow-up uh, uh, program, maybe two, two or three more as we go forward. But when I started out, I left something hanging in there. There was a question mark that I left hanging in there. And that is when you ask the question, how, uh, you know, how effective and how efficacious has vaccination in general, not for COVID specifically, how, how much has it been? We have looked at more, as you said, in the year 1980, Smallpox was completely eradicated. It wasn't any other type of medication. It was vaccination. Smallpox that had plagued humanity for centuries was eventually eradicated by vaccination. By 1980, we had none of it left. Um, and then we had polio. And we could have done the same to polio. Uh, it was almost eradicated. And then there were two or three regions in the world where eradication, you know, was blocked on account of what? On account of attitudes and attitudes of specifically Muslims and ulama. Those two regions were the tribal belt between Afghanistan and Pakistan, number one, and the other one is in our own Africa. It was the northern uh, states of Nigeria, mm. populated by Muslims. So the reason why it could not be eradicated there, because of misunderstandings that the, one, the ones that are coming in, the vaccinators, are coming in, uh, you know, seeking to spread HIV or to make uh, children barren, that they cannot have children in future. And all kinds of myths and legends and superstitions were attached to it to the extent that vaccination workers were attacked and killed both in Afghanistan, Pakistan, as well as in Nigeria. And uh, these were the questions that were asked about it. And uh, as long as we uh, allow ourselves to be covered by this, this cloud of superstition and assumption, we are not going to beat a disease of this nature. But the moment the government stepped forward and educated themselves on the issue and then went to the public and said, now let's do what is required. Then what happened? Then uh, by the year, last year, you know, when we were in the throes, deep in the throes of COVID, in August 2020, Africa was declared polio-free. Look at the entire world. You know, Afghanistan, Pakistan, is still goes on. Look at it. It's Muslim territories where Muslims were adopting an attitude that I will, I will, I will describe as obscurantism and anti-science. Uh, and on account of that, they did a disservice to not to Muslims alone, to the entire mankind. This disease could have been kicked into oblivion. Attitudes amongst the Muslim uh, community led to it still lingering in the world where it is today. If we are going to beat this uh, uh, disease, this COVID year, attitude has to change. The way in which we look, we have to be more open-hearted, get rid of uh, obscurantist attitude, and embrace things completely trusting in that Allah Ta'ala will never allow the destiny of this Ummah, and this Ummah has a destiny, Allah Ta'ala will never allow the destiny of this Ummah to be derailed by anyone, no oligarchs, no powerful persons, uh, 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 no captains of industry, whoever they might be. Allah Ta'ala finally and above everything is in control of this world. No one will be able to bring about vast demographic change in this world except by the permission of Allah Ta'ala. And Allah Ta'ala has promised us that the day will come when this deen will reach each and every house on the solar face of this earth. We see what has happened after 9-11. 9-11, uh, you know, was intended to have turned the image of Muslims into terrorists. Allah Ta'ala turns it around. And we have had more people embracing Islam within the very homes of those that wanted to 
uh, use it as an opportunity to scapegoat Islam and Muslims, and they enter the deen. They end, they become Muslim. So, there might be conspiracies. We don't deny there are people who hate Islam and Muslims, but they do not have the power to bring about the type of changes that people fear. Everything is within the control of Allah Ta'ala. Nothing falls outside the control. Allah has a destiny for this ummah. Their destiny will be fulfilled. We trust in that. That's where our tawakkul lies. And upon that, we will embrace knowledge. We will embrace science. We will embrace embrace the legacy of and on that we march forward, inshallah. How do we know that you're not being controlled currently by nanobots flowing through your veins and making you say these things or being paid off by Gates? If we go on to that slippery slope, there is no end. Then you go down, there's no end to that hole. And that we want to warn our people against. You know, once you've gone into uh, conspiracy theorism, there's absolutely no end to where you, uh, where you can end. And th there's only one answer to it. Trust in Allah. Trust in the fact that Allah has a destiny, has an outcome for this world. The, he said to his Rasul This deen will rise above all other forms of religion. That is a destiny. No nanobots, no nothing. Can, you know, when, when Ibrahim was thrown into the fire, Allah says to the fire, don't burn, and it cannot burn. So even if someone is putting nanobots there, and Allah says nanobots don't work, it will not work. They are not in control. Allah alone is in control. So, subhanAllah, as I said, we haven't, we haven't finished half of the questions. There were 23. I said this at the beginning of the program. There were 23 questions that we have identified as being the most informative, you know, immediate need for the community. This was intended as an informate, uh, as an information panel discussion, uh, not as a debate. Um, and subhanAllah, there, there's so much to discuss. So as Manatai has mentioned and some of the doctors, we will in all likelihood need one or two uh, more of these programs just to complete uh, the main questions. There are some things that can be found, you know, readily available. But the idea behind such a panel was that we get the information from people that we know and trust, and we, we would often entrust our lives in their hands, you know, obviously knowing that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is the ultimate controller of everything. So with that said, uh, we, we say Jazakumullah khairan for all of you for viewing. For the panelists, it has been a grueling day for the panelists, subhanAllah. I know Manana has been in meetings. The first phone call I got from Manana was early this morning. Uh, I was still busy waking up. And then Manana went into one meeting after the next, all about this, um, uh, the vaccines and speaking to the ulama and so on. So we really appreciate your time and your efforts. May Allah reward all of you in abundance. And for those uh, viewers who had come online, I hope that you have learned something. For those who came with the intention of learning, I hope that Allah opens up your heart and your minds and your souls that you may actually benefit from that knowledge and pass it on to others uh, with these valid sources of, of, of information. And inshallah, we've noted all of your questions. The doctors will refer to your questions. Maulana will refer to your comments as well. And they uh, thereby base uh, a, a formula for you know completing them next time around, inshallah. Once again, Jazakumullah khairan. Wa sallallahu ala Sayyidina Muhammad subhanallah wa bihamdi. Subhanakallahu wa bihamdik. Nashadu wa la ilaha illa anta nastaghfiruka wa natubu ilayk. From my side, assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Uh, doctors. Alaikum salam wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Barakallahu feek.